Oh, look at this. Look at this. What do we have here? Hey, hey, hey. Look at these. Let me see this. We want a teacher. Okay? Let me see yours. Come on, you guys, come up here on the stage with me. All right? What's your name? Tatum. Come on, Tatum. You, they got to see your sign. What does yours say? It says, I can't wait to meet you. Awesome. What do you guys need? I want to learn about Jesus. Um, let's see. You know what? I think... Uh, <laughs> Owen, awesome, dude. Yeah, come on, give it, go it up. You didn't. Need... <laughs> Owen says this: "You can do it. It's not that hard." What do you guys want? I think this sign right here says it the best. What's your name? Micah. Micah. We need a teacher. All right. They need teachers, not babysitters. For the month of August, uh, these kids uh, need some of you to help out with this. All right. I don't even have to say anymore. I mean, I think the kids said it loud and clear. Here you go. <laughs> All right, you guys. You guys want to stay up here the whole time when I'm preaching or not? No? Okay. I, under- I knew you didn't want to be here. Go have fun. <laughs> you take that. Hey, buddy. Camden, you're going to be a pastor someday. I can tell, man. You, just- you want to stay up with me? Up here with me the whole time? <laughs> All right, yeah, no, he says. All right. We're going to continue this awesome text in Philippians. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand high because I should have done that first so that Mark can see you. If you'd like one, just raise your hand, we'll get you one. Right, Philippians 2. I think we've been in this book now for a couple months. We're getting there. And we're going to start at verse 5, but the verses we're going to look at this morning are verses 9 through 11. Here's the exhortation. Here's what Paul is calling us to do. This is what Paul is calling us to be. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now Paul describes that, first the humiliation of Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or kept or hung on to, but he let go of that, he made himself nothing, and taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearances of man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore... Therefore, here's here's Christ's exaltation. Therefore, in light of Christ's humiliation, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, if you were here last week, um, I had you circle three words in verse one, because this is a whole section, one through 11. In verse one, I had you circle the word spirit, I had you circle the word Christ, and then in the last verse, 
verse 11, I had you circle the word Father. Because this really is the backdrop for understanding this text. We need to understand that God is a trinity. As trinity, this three-dimensional God, where each dimension is so utterly perfect that it forms its own distinct person, and so intense is the intimacy and the relationship between these dimensions, so perfect is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we can say three persons, yet one God. And I wonder how many of us think of God this way. I wonder how many of us would explain God this way. I wonder how many of us, when we pray to God, when we right now just worship God through our singing, how many of us in our minds, as, we're, as our minds are trying to wrap itself around God, how many of us think that God within himself is this community, this family of Father, Son, and Spirit? And what I wonder even more is this. I wonder how many of us really believe that this dance, as C.S. Lewis talks about it, of Father, Son, and Spirit is the source of all joy, the source of all pleasure, the source of all shalom, the source of all life, and that the biggest need of our life right now is to be in that dance. That our hearts were made for this, that we are made to know him, we are made to live in him and with him, we are made to see his face, to sit at his bosom, to experience the fellowship there. See, that's the all-important why behind verses 6 through 11 in Philippians 2. This is why the second person of the Trinity left the community of the Trinity, why the Son left his Father's side, why he let go of his equality with God, why he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation, why he was made in human likeness, found in the appearance as a man. It's why he became a slave of all slaves. This is why. Jesus crossed all worlds to come to us, and he didn't do it to just give us religion. Here's the religious manual on how you can be a good person. Or he didn't even do it to say, this is the way to a distant God. Jesus, in fact, came to bring an end to religion. And I'm going to say this. I don't think there's anything more destructive. I don't think there's anything more dangerous or deadly to the church and what Christ is doing and wants to do. It's more destructive than than Satan and all his schemes. It's more destructive than worldliness. Religion. Religion. And Jesus came to end religion because what Jesus came to do is to show us the Father. The Father. Touches us, doesn't it? I love it. He came to show us the Father, that we might know the Father and be in the Father. I mean, imagine, uh, let's go back 2,000 years, and imagine Jesus standing up. There's a big crowd, crowd around him, and he says this. No one knows the Father but me. <laughs> you see how stunning those words must have been? You see how offensive 
those words would have been, no one knows the Father but me. And then a little bit later, he says this, he who has seen me has seen the Father. See, Jesus came to show us the Father's face. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. Jesus desperately wants us to know the face of the Father. He desperately wants us to have the communion that he has with the Father and with the Spirit. And Jesus crossed all worlds to establish this kind of intense personal relationship with us where he could include us in the relationship that he has with the Father and the Spirit. Do you know this? Because if you don't, and better yet, if you're not experiencing it, all you have is religion. See, and the gospel is this, as it's laid out in Philippians, that through Christ's humiliation, that Christ reopens the door, he invites us in, he gets at our level, literally gets in our skin, our flesh, to show us the way back to God. That's why the Bible uses words like adoption. We are literally adopted back into God, into his family as sons and daughters. No longer are we enemies or dogs under the table, but we're children at his table. And that's why our text today uses words like, when you look at verse 1, united with Christ, fellowship of the Spirit. It's this language of getting us back into the community of the Trinity So now we come to verse 9, and you have this word, this all-important word, therefore. Therefore, in light of Christ's humiliation, God exalts him to the highest place. And see, the propositions that follow in the next couple of verses are awesome. He gets the name above every name. Every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's what I want to do. Before we unpack these propositions, I want to show you how a Middle Easterner communicates these same propositions, but in pictures. Because to me, the proposition, it stirs my mind and my imagination. That's why I like the proposition. But the picture is the thing that moves my soul. It's one thing to know the the proposition, God loves you with an everlasting love. It's another thing to, boom, cross this picture. And so when you look at these words, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God, that's the proposition. Here's the picture. John 13, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power that he had come from God and was returning to God. That's the picture. Here's the proposition. Though he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, here's the picture. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Here's the proposition. Taking the very nature of a slave, Jesus humbled himself. Here's the picture. After that, Jesus poured water in a basin, 
began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And now we come to today's text. Here's the proposition. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Here's the picture. Verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And see, Jesus leaves the table fellowship, takes off his clothes, starts to slave, and then he returns to the place at the table. Now, what is that highest place? Again, it's a picture that the Bible gives us. It's the right hand. It's the right hand. And I know this doesn't mean anything to us, does it? The right hand. But the Bible uses this imagery. It's, it, it's the place at the right hand of the Father. Because, listen, in those days, to sit at the right hand of a king was known to be the favored ex- executive position. It was the person who was the CEO, for lack of a better word, of the empire, much like Joseph was to Pharaoh. Read Genesis 41, verse 41 today, and you'll get this imagery. Joseph was at Pharaoh's right hand. He was in charge of everything. Everything was placed under his feet. That's why you have texts like Ephesians, and this is why I wanted to teach Ephesians. I couldn't decide if I should do Ephesians or Philippians, but Ephesians 1, verse 20 just flushes this out. It says, God who exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed everything under his feet, appointed him to be head over over everything for the church. You can read these same kind of uh, truths in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, or 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 24 and 25. And listen, what I don't want us to think is that this is just Paul's idea or Paul's theology because Jesus also used this imagery of his place being at the Father's right hand all the time. My favorite is this, Matthew 26, where Jesus is brought before that earthly court, the Sanhedrin. The high priest says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is what Jesus says. Yes, it is exactly as you say. And he doesn't stop there. He says, but I say to all of you, Every person in this room, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And you know what happened in that room when Jesus said that? What'd they do? They went berserk. And they started beating him and spitting on him. See, if we don't understand what Son of Man is, we don't even get the full extent of what Jesus just said. Because in Daniel 7, when you start using language about yourself like Son of Man, these guys know what Jesus was saying about himself. Daniel 7 says this, In my vision at night I looked. There before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heavens. 
And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men from every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Our love in Acts 7. Oh, it's such a great story because Stephen comes before the same human court. And he gets done preaching one of the most amazing sermons about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and his place in the universe. And they're so mad again, they literally start screaming at the top of their lungs. I mean, these are grown, sophisticated men. And they take him out to stone him. And as they're stoning him, this is all in Acts 7. It says that Stephen cries out, I see Jesus. Except this time he sees him not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. And the question becomes then, why is he standing and not sitting? Because Jesus as his advocate, as the human courts were condemning him and killing him, the only court that mattered was standing and commending him. And there is Jesus at the right hand of God. Standing. And that's where he is today. That's his place. See, and if you want to just distill the Christian message into just a simple clause, and sometimes I just wish we could make it this simple. We put all this stuff around it and all this bureaucracy around it. It's interesting that when the church historically is persecuted, what happens is all this other stuff that we make the main thing kind of just falls away and the real main thing becomes the main thing. And the main thing of it all is this. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Oh, there's so many texts. That's my problem today. I know it. Um, yet for us, and this is Paul's monotheism coming out. Yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through whom we live. And I'll add Romans 11. For from him and to him and through him are all things. I find this to be our spiritual ground zero. It's this living encounter, living relationship with the one true God who is Lord of all. In fact, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to confuse you. Because I'm going to say at the heart of this whole thing is Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. It's right at the heart. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohehu, Adonai Had. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And listen to me. Shema is not just at the heart of the Jewish thing. It is. It's at the heart of the Christian thing. Now, I want us to see this. We have to know what this means. 
Because I know what some of you are thinking right now. Wait a second, Rod, you're confusing us. First you say God is three. Now you're saying that God is one. Yes, I am, and I'm going to add to it. God is one, is at the heart of the whole matter. And see, for the Jew, this Shema is on their lips every day, all day, as both confession and prayer. Because as confession, this is what they are declaring. They are declaring the Lord, Yahweh, is our God. And Yahweh is one, meaning this, Yahweh alone. Yahweh alone is Lord. That is at the heart of this confession. Now remember, the world when the Bible was written was a polytheistic world. In that time, people had a God for everything. They had a God for Monday. They had a God for Tuesday. They had a God for Wednesday. They had a God for commerce. They had a God for sports. They had a God for pleasure. They had a God for fertility. They had a God for the weather. They had a God for love. They had a God for war. And see, over every sphere of life, there was a different God. And you know what? If you think this sounds backwards, I'm going to tell you something. I think the ancients understood something that we moderns fail to see. That there is a spiritual power behind everything. That money isn't just money. But there's a spiritual power behind money. Sex isn't just sex. But there's a spiritual power behind it. See, that the things that we touch, the things that we taste, the things that we pursue... They're supercharged with spiritual power, sex, beauty, career, money, possessions, comfort, need for power, consumption of food, drugs, boyfriend, girlfriend, pleasure, popularity. These things can all exercise massive power over us. They can be gods, literally, idols. And see, so what a polytheist does is they compartmentalize life. For each compartment, they have their God, they have their idol, or their good luck charm that they need to appease, that they need to tap into. And here's my question. Are we really that different? See, I think there's a lot of practical polytheism going on today. We compartmentalize our life all the time. We even become different people within those different compartments and we rely on different gods and different idols and trust different powers within these compartments. I mean, think about this. Why do we even think that one thing could be spiritual and another thing could be secular? Why do we have places and times where we think this is where I live for God, but then we have places and times this is where I live for me? See, and as as practical polytheists, this is where I trust the God of consumerism. Here is where I trust the God of self-help. Here is where I trust the gods of the state. Here is where I trust the God of health and medicine. But what Shema is, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it's this claim and it's significant. It's that there are no longer different gods for different things. It's the confession, there's only one God. Yahweh alone is 
Lord. That's why when Jesus was asked, what's at the heart of all of it? What did he say? Shema. Because Shema not only says he is one Lord, there's one Lord over it all, Yahweh. But it also is this call to be wholehearted. I gotta love him with everything I am, everything I got. I gotta bring every aspect of my life under this one God. As Yahweh says, you are to have no other gods before me, none. See, and this is why when we read Torah, the first five books of the Bible, some of this stuff sounds really crazy. I mean, why all these instructions? One verse talks about how we're to approach temple. Another talks about what one is to do if their donkey falls into a pit. Another talks about what to do with the mildew in the kitchen. Another talks about how you're to treat the female menstrual cycle. And and it goes on and on and on, and you're kind of like, all right, what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. Torah is teaching about how all of life, every sphere of life, from going to the restroom to going to the temple, all has significance to God. All of it is to fall under his lordship. So he's lord when I go to the temple. He's lord when I go to my field. He's lord when I return to my house. He's lord when I rise. He's lord when I lie down. See, what Shema does is it puts a complete end to all these compartments because Shema literally doesn't allow for us to conceive of anything in this world that's outside the lordship of of Yahweh. And so Yahweh then becomes my Lord over my Sunday just as much as he's Lord over my Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Yahweh is Lord over my public life just as much as he is my private life. He's Lord over my work. He's Lord over my home. He's Lord over my time. He's Lord over my possessions. He's Lord over my relationships. He's Lord over my family. For from him and to him and through him are all things. And so from a Hebraic perspective, or better yet, a biblical perspective, monotheism is not so much a statement about God's essence as Western theologians have thought. But it's rather an existential claim. There is only one God, Yahweh, and he alone is Lord of everything, the universe, and me in every aspect of me. And that's why the response is more than just hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. It's love him. Love him with everything you have. Love him with your whole heart. Love him with, with all your might. Love him with, with, with your mind. Love him with everything. See, and I learned this. For the observant Jew, Shema's on their lips every day and all day. And when they say, hear, O Israel, they are declaring this to God. They're declaring it. But they're not only declaring it to God. I found this very interesting. They're also declaring it to Israel. Hear, O Israel. Who's Israel? Well, first to them, Israel's Jacob. Jacob, can you hear us? You see us? Yahweh's my Lord. And I'm giving everything I have to him. Israel's all the people of God before them. Can you hear us? The great cloud of witnesses, do you see us? We're wholehearted. 
It's the people of God today, and, and, and Israel's my very own soul. You're declaring it to your own soul. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is my Lord. Alone is he God. Love him. Love him. And that's why they can't just declare it, they pray it. And now you're asking me right now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Everything. Because not only does Jesus say this is the most important, but I want you to hear what Paul is saying about Jesus. He is saying this. It's awesome. Jesus is Lord. Kyrios is the word in Greek. And listen to me, Kyrios is more than Lord. It's more than just saying Jesus is master. Jesus is above all. Because when the Torah, what we call the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, this is years before Jesus, the personal name of God, the YHWH, the yod heh vav heh from which we say Yahweh or Jehovah, to the Jew, it's the unutterable name of God. It's too holy and awesome. We don't even put it on our lips. So they simply today translate it Hashem, which in Hebrew means the name. The name above every name. In fact, I'll just, uh, I'll show you just in your Bibles, just so you can read them really well. Go to Genesis 1. And just scan over there, and you see God, 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 God everywhere, okay? In Hebrew, that's El, Elohim, in plural, as we talked about last week. Go to Genesis 2. Now, all of a sudden, it's no longer God, 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 but now when you get to verse 4, it's the Lord God. Ah, there's the personal name of God. Every time you see Lord in your English text, it's the personal name of God. Yod Hey Vav Hey Y H W H, which we translate Lord or Jehovah. Sixteen hundred times in the Old Testament, you find this. So when they translated the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew into Greek, every time they saw the Y H W H, it was translated Kyrios. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Jesus is. Kyrios, Jesus, is Yahweh. Yahweh. That the name placed on Jesus is Yahweh, meaning this, everything that we've come to know about Yahweh prior to the New Testament, all of that is placed on Jesus. And everything that we see in Jesus, humiliation and exaltation, is Yahweh. Jesus isn't just doing this for Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And if, if you think I'm taking this too far, because I don't want you to trust me just because I say it, I want you to trust this because God says it. And I'll take you to the text that Paul's referring to. Isaiah 45. In this whole text, 
God is just talking about all the rulers and kings of the world, but through it all, he's saying these kinds of things. Like at the end of verse 14, he's saying, surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Then in verse 18, he says, this is what the Lord Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God, fashioned, made the earth, and founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. He says this, I am the Lord, Yahweh. And there is no other. So you take this whole text all the way down to verse 22 and it says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me, Yahweh. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear or confess. Yahweh. Don't reduce Jesus to your little buddy. Don't just reduce him to this little pint-sized thing that you carry around in your back pocket. Every Caesar, every Pharaoh, every king, every president, every dignitary, every cultural and social elite, every name and face that fills our our magazines, everything in the heavens, every angel, everything under the heavens, everything on earth, everything below the earth will bow face down to Yahweh, to Jesus And they will look at him and they will all, if they can, and say, you're Lord. Do you know this? Do you believe this? This burn in your heart? Better yet, is he today your Lord? Coming back from Israel, I've been struck with this quality of Americans. We like things that are nice. Therefore, we like a nice Jesus. We want a nice cross to go with our nice life and our nice houses and our nice homes and our nice vacations. You can't put Jesus in that category. He is not nice. There is nothing nice about Jesus' humiliation. It was intense. It was bloody. It was gruesome. It was torturous. From which men hide their faces, says the prophet. It wasn't nice. It was hell. And his exaltation, well, we can say, oh, but isn't that nice? I mean, there goes Jesus. He gets to go back to heaven. Listen to me. He isn't just in heaven right now. He's Lord. And everything is and will be under his lordship. And I'll tell you what this means for us. You and I cannot just like him. I like Jesus. Do you like Jesus? Yeah, I like Jesus. Are you kidding me? Like him? You either flat out reject him or you love him. You either just go away from him or you, you, you enthrone him. 
Because that's who he is. He's Lord. And so we can't just take him in as just nice and just sort of like him. If we're going to take him in, he is Lord. We take him in as Lord and we enthrone him and we love him. I mean, here's Paul. He's this zealous monotheist. He's persecuting the church. He's going from house to house. He's arresting Christians because we can't have these people who are in introducing new gods. There's only one God. Until that day he meets his one God. He comes face to face with God. The light of the knowledge of God's glory just bind, blinds him and causes him to call, fall face down. As he's face down, do you know what he says? <laughs> I love this. Who are you, Lord? Because <laughs> he knows he has just come face to face with the Lord. Lord, who are you? I'm Jesus. You're helping me, Paul. You're hurting me. I can just see Paul almost with Stephen's words probably still ringing in his head because it happened just hardly a chapter before because the text says that when Stephen was stoned, Paul was standing there approving. And maybe those words of Stephen, look, I see heaven opening up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul's probably thinking, Stephen's right. Paul's cut to the heart. Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's in the face of Christ. Let me end with two questions. Have you come face to face with this Lord? Is your life bowed at his feet? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he the king of your life? Or is something else your real master and your real Lord right now? See, I'm going to tell you right now, as Lord, his claim over us can never be partial. It must be total. Everything I possess, everything I am, he is to be Lord. My hands, my feet, my head, my heart, my silver, my gold, my time, my love, everything. Maybe some of you need to do mikvah today. Confess some idols. Get your hand, your heart, your head. Get it all recommitted to him. Second question. Do you see God's way? See, the therefore connects Christ's humiliation with his exaltation. This is God's way. This is always God's way. That the way up is to go down. And it's not only God's way as we see it in Jesus, it's God's way for us. 
The way to fullness and wholeness is through emptying yourself. The way to power is by giving up power and becoming weak. The way to get rich is to give it away. The way to be really happy is, is to not live for your happiness, but to live for the happiness of others. The, the, the way to greatness is through humility. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. The way to real freedom is by becoming a slave. The way to life is through death. And here's what happens. When we come face to face with Jesus, when the gospel confronts us, it always confronts us to go down. We're never going to go up unless we first go down. It calls us to go down and admit that we're desperate sinners, that we're in desperate need of a Savior. It calls us to get so small. It calls us to get tiny. It calls us to empty ourselves and to humble ourselves to die to ourselves. But see, when we go down like Christ, we're exalted like Christ. And Colossians 3, I love it, tells us I'm not just standing here. You're not just sitting there. But if you go down with Jesus in his humiliation and you set your mind and your heart on that, you are right now seated with him in the heavenly places. You're in. And you're hidden in him. So you no longer have to be like Adam and Eve who are just hiding in the bushes and all scared. I can't be known. known. No one can find out who I am. i got to put this face on. Uh-uh, you're free. You're hidden in him. This morning, communion tables are open. I've gone too long. I'm just going to say this. Respond to him as your Lord. Let's pray. God, I just want us to feel the full effect of these awesome truths. What you, Yahweh, have done in your humiliation and your exaltation. And God, I, I really hope some of us, or all of us, are even left asking, why did you do it? <laughs> why did you do this? And God, you did it for the glory of the Father, but you also did it, you gave up your treasure because you treasure us. You love us that much. I just pray this morning, Lord, that our response would just attempt to match what you've done for us, God, that you would be our treasure of all treasures, our pearl of great price. May that be our response this morning. In Jesus' name.